Now up to, uh, <clears throat> up to this point, we have laid a foundation um, in the Bible. And, you know, if the Bible likens you and me, our bodies, to, uh, to a temple, a house, and so far what we have done is we have laid a foundation and, and got the walls up. That's what we've done so far. And you notice that when we started, I took uh, time to really lay out for you the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Absolutely vital. Uh, you miss that and you're going nowhere in the Bible, ever. Uh, that is the, that is the if, if, if where all the heresy and the bad teaching and all of the screwed up stuff starts in the latest in church, it starts right there with somebody thinking that they are the same. And so we took some time doing that. And then I wanted you to get an overview picture of the Bible because that's really, uh, for me in learning anything in life, if, if I can visualize it first and get a concept of it, I, I, it's better for me when I try to understand it. Uh, I've just always been that way and it helps me. Once I have a picture in my mind, you know, that I can put the pieces to the picture, so to speak. And um, so I, I took what I did for me and basically did it for you. And that's where we broke the Bible down into 17 compartments, 17 or 18. And um, you should have those down now. Your job meeting every month was to uh, take what we give you and then build into that uh, that by the time we came back, you pretty much had that down. So if you have done that, you now have a pretty good picture composite of the Bible. We followed the natural breakdowns that the Bible follows itself, and it, it, it just works. It really does. So that is our first section in, in Institute. Institute's going to have four sections to it. I can't tell you how long it'll go. I'd like to say three years, four years, probably no longer than that, but you never know. Um, I, I, the key to me is not how long we go, but do I do a good job giving you the material. Um, right now, we're going to start in our second section, which is uh, putting the interior, using that building concept, putting the interior structures uh, into your building. And we're going we're gonna to talk about the, uh, the key areas that uh, you have to have once you get a structure of the Bible in your mind. Once I do this, and this will take us a little while, but once I do this, then we'll, I'll take you through the three or four toughest books in the Bible, supposedly. And I'll go through in great detail Matthew, Acts, and Hebrews. And I'll show you how they fit in and any heresy today that you find will come out of one of those three books. And we'll, we'll, we'll lay them out as the Bible divides them up. You'll get all the information, uh, and we'll have that. And then the last section will be a section on church history. And uh, that'll give you kind of a complete composite of everything. With everything else you're getting around here, uh, you know, you, uh, by the time we're through this, probably halfway through it, some of you are already there, uh, you are really going to have a working knowledge of the Bible. And uh, that's, uh, that's, that's what I'm going for. And today we're going to enter into what I call the seven series. And <clears throat> this is God's systematic theology. 
Years ago, a guy by the name of Francis Schaeffer wrote four or five volumes on what was called in his book uh, systemat Schaeffer's Systematic Theology. It was the standard in all the Bible colleges. Most of the pastors, you know, would swear by it. I don't think any of them ever really read it, but it was neat to have them on your bookshelf that it appeared that you did. Um, I read, I have Schaefer's Systematic Theology. I don't anymore. I gave it away a number of years ago. Um, but I, I went through system, his theology. Absolutely worthless. Uh, he misses the boat on everything. And he's part of the the mindset of scholarism, scholarism and scholasticism that, you know, that just completely misses everything about the Bible. He didn't touch one time uh, about anything structured in the Bible. It was all stuff that either he'd put together, somebody else to put together, and ran around the Bible, but it never ran through the Bible. We're not going to do that. Within God's Bible, I've told you this before, he has a, a structure by which he wants you to learn it. You either learn it this way or you don't learn it. And within that, God has put his own systematic theology. And there's eight major ones. We're going to cover the eight major ones, and we may get into some other ones. But it's all built on the number seven. The number seven is God's number of perfection. So each one of these is going to be a, a series unto itself. Uh, the first one is uh, that I always teach is the one that's probably most important, and that is the seven mysteries. We're going to start those today. Then I'm going to walk you through and show you how that there are seven judgments in the Bible. Then I'm going to walk you through and show you that there's seven different baptisms in the Bible. I'm going to show you then that there's seven resurrections in the Bible. Then I'm going to show you the seven things that the Bible says that you and I as a child of God should not be ignorant of. Then I'm going to show you the seven stages of your spiritual growth. Then I'm going to show you the seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. And then I'm going to end it with the, or not end it maybe, but I'm going to then deal with the eighth one, which is the seven sevens, or how do you know that man has only been on earth for uh, 6,000 years, and the 7,000 year will be the millennial reign of Christ. Now, these seven series will be God's systematic theology. And uh, here's, how I, here's how I explain it. This is why it's so important. We know now from our times together in the Bible that the number one issue is doctrine. You have to have doctrine. It's number one. All Scripture is given by inspiration and profitable for doctrine, number one. You have to have doctrine. Doctrine is the thing that will keep you from getting messed up. Uh, I've said this many, many times, and you've heard me say it. I'm going to say it again tomorrow, and may I'll try to change it a little bit so you won't know I'm saying it again. But anyway, <laughs> I really am concerned uh, in Christianity today that Probably most of the people who claim to be saved have probably never really trusted Christ as their own personal Savior. We have a salvation that is being propagated today by churches that has no doctrine with it. And doctrine, we've already been told, is the number one ingredient we must have in everything. And salvation is built on the doctrine of repentance. And when salvation comes to your life because you have chosen to repent, then the Third doctrine that's major is the doctrine of sanctification. God is setting you apart. 
We don't see that today in Christianity. I'm just going to tell you. I know. I know. I'm an old fogey who lives in a, lives in a cave and, and all this stuff. I'm just telling you. Without the doctrine of repentance, there is no salvation. It's just that simple. And what we've done today is we've lost the doctrine. And when you don't have the doctrine, then what happens is then you base everything on your feelings or your emotions. And those are the most dangerous aspect of anybody's life. Your emotions, your feelings change. You've got to have something that is rock solid that never changes. Not all of you are going to wake up some morning and feel like you're saved. And when you're based on a feelings, then obviously the, the next step is that maybe I'm not saved. You're not saved how you feel about it. You're saved because He promised you, Titus chapter 1, verse 2, and hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised before the foundation of the world, that if you followed Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10, you'd, He'd save you. Now, if you did that, it doesn't matter how you feel about it. But see, what doctrine does is doctrine takes the emotions out of it. Doctrine takes the feelings out of it. You can never in a Christian's life have emotional instability and doctrine. You cannot. You may have one or the other, but you can't have them both. Because doctrine will erase your feeling about what this verse says. You'll see on Thursday night from time to time, and um, you know we'll get questions that, uh, and they're very good questions. And I never, um, you know, I never um, want to discourage anybody from asking anything. I, I never do because that's how you learn. And I'm certainly this is not a criticism in any way, shape, or form. But it's easy for me to see the, the questions that are asked based on somebody's emotion versus on somebody's doctrine. And this is what I try to correct here. Uh, I have one goal uh, here uh, is when I teach you the Bible, and that is to make the doctrine very clear. Because doctrine is everything. And you and this is the problem in the Laodicean church today. It's the problem with the churches. And I know. I get beat up all the time because I am so negative. I get it. I am. You know, I, 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 it just is. I mean, uh, I, I, it certainly, but you live in the world that I live in, in Christianity, and there's a lot of negativity going on. And I hate to see, my life's calling is to do what I'm doing right now. And that is to teach young men and young ladies the Bible. That's what God called me for to do. That's what He saved me to do. And that's my job. I let you disciple, let you run the athletic programs, let you do all the other stuff. You guys go to Lincoln, you guys run the whole show for me, and I'm good with that. When it comes to teaching you the Bible, that's my job. Nobody else's. And yet I know there's guys out there could teach it as, as good as I can, or maybe even better. Tough luck, it's my job. <laughs> and that's my deal. And uh, within that parameter, you can teach and lay out and give whatever you want. But when it comes to the corporate time of my responsibility of giving you the structure of the Bible, that's my job. And uh, I don't do much in life, but that's probably the best thing I, I, I know how to do. And I, haven't, I don't do it because I'm, I, I'm, I'm such a great Bible teacher. I know so much about the Bible. I just do it because I know the way I did it. And it worked for me. And if it works for me, as stupid as I am, it'll certainly work for you because you guys are a lot smarter than I am. And so that's what we do. That's my job. But it has to come back to doctrine. Because doctrine will keep you from getting into heresy. 
The reason why we have charismatics today, Mormons, Seventh-day group, the Jehovah Witnesses, or whoever else you want to talk about, is simply because they don't have any doctrine. They have a lot of verses that they feel very passionate about, but if you sit down with an open Bible and put a structure to the Bible based on doctrine, they'd fall apart like a broken accordion. I mean, there's just nothing there. They don't have any doctrinal substance. All they have is a bunch of favorite verses that they pull out to make it say what they want it to say. We don't do that here. We don't do that here. There isn't a thing that I don't teach you that we don't go through the Bible and we don't lay it out the way the Bible puts it down and, and, and lays it out. That's just what we do. So when we start into these seven series, here's what we're doing. I call this the safety net of right doctrine. Each one of these teachings will, will look at it this way. There's seven baptisms. There's the seven judgments. There's the seven resurrections. There's the seven sevens. There's all these seven series that we, we have. Once you get into these seven series, they're going to break down into individual doctrines. So they're going to cross, and you're going to see that once I lay them out individually, then they start crossing over and bumping into the last one I taught you. And you, what you'll see is, is that they inter, 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 interlock together. So I always use this illustration. Here is the seven series by themselves, and then once you get in there, you start to see them cross over each other. And what you got when you're finished is a safety net of Bible doctrine that you cannot fall through. You have a safety net of Bible truth that will keep you from falling through it and falling into the bad teaching that's out there uh, in Christianity today. And it will keep you from you looking at a verse and saying, I think this means this. All due respect, I don't care what you think it means. And that's what we do today. We read a verse, and then based on our feelings or emotions of how we feel about something, say salvation, we get preconceived ideas that we can lose our salvation. So when we read verses that we don't know what to do with, that's where we go. Doctrine eliminates that. The doctrine takes the emotion out of everything. And when you take the emotion out of everything, you're left with just truth. And truth will never fail you. Truth will never let you down. Truth will never send you down the wrong road. Truth will never allow you to look at something and say, I think this means this. Most Bible studies today, in most churches, get 20, 30 people, maybe 10 people. You sit around a little room. You get your lattes. They're not really coffee drinkers. They're latte drinkers. Real men and women drink coffee, black. There you go. So, and they're going to study the book of whatever. And so they'll read a chapter, a passage or whatever. And then for the next 40 minutes, this is how their Bible study consists. They'll go around the room and they'll say, what do you think it means? What does it mean to you? Uh, how, how do you interpret this? And they actually think that by gaining 15 people's opinion on something that they've got truth. All you got is 15 people who don't know anything about the Bible telling you something that the Bible isn't anything to do with. That is their Bible study. That is their mindset. And it's a situation where, um, you know, that's the status today. 
And they do that because obviously the guy teaching doesn't know anything about the Bible, so he's hiding behind everybody else. And I know how it works. You know, his safe haven is the fact that I couldn't teach this book if my life depended on it. So, so I can appear to be the leader and running a Bible study, I'll throw the verse out and boy, how smart I am. I'll let everybody else be part of it and have interaction. And we'll walk away uh, thinking, you know, well, we got something great out of that. Truth of the matter is you got nothing out of it. That's the way we do it today. And, um, you know, doctrine is the key. So when we start the seven series, we're starting that safety's net right here, a Bible doctrine that'll never allow you to fall through into heresy. It'll fix every problem you got. It'll fix every emotional issue you have. You know, uh, most people bless their hearts, and, and I've I've deal with a lot of young men and young ladies through my years, and I I watch the guys, not so much the girls, but I watch the guys who are maybe somewhere out there across this country that don't have a church. And this is certainly not a criticism. It's just an observation and it's the truth. When I get them or they come here or they say they want to come here and come out and check it out, I found this to be true of almost every one of them. And again, this is not a criticism. Because they don't have a church, because they don't have a structure, because they don't have a, a, somebody who is following the protocol of teaching them the Bible, they're left to themselves. And they want to learn the Bible. And they'll work hard at learning. And they'll read this and they'll read that. And they'll do everything they know how to do, given their situation that they're in. And I appreciate that. But what happens is this, in every case. They'll pick up something that is not correct because they have nobody guiding them. They have nobody keeping them between the white lines. And they'll start to get creep into their life something that is not true, something that is completely wrong, and they'll build their whole Christian life around those things. And when they finally, and I've had them happen, I've had them come here and they check everything out and before they go back or whatever they say, we sit down and talk a little bit, and they always say, well, I want you to know, um, I, I believe this, and I believe that, and I believe this, and I believe this, and I believe that. And I think to myself, that is not even in the Bible. I had a guy here a while back that came over, and before he left, he says, you know what? He says, he says uh, I really like it here, and he teaches the Bible. He says, I want you to know, he says, I don't, I don't believe that uh, and a guy goes and goes to the lake of fire, he's going to be in the lake of fire forever. And my question is, where does he go? Topeka? I mean, and, and I took him over to the verses and I showed that their smoke ascendeth forever and ever. And I asked him, how long is forever and ever? But he was a good guy. And he's a victim of, of being in a situation where he has no biblical structure, nobody who understands the Bible teaching him the Bible and knocking that out of him before he ever gets ingrained in him. Now that is what you have here that most people don't have. And, um, you know, it's a thing where you, you, you get saved, you come into this church, and you get the Bible unadulterated right down the line and you get doctrine. 
and the doctrine is what keeps you, uh, you guys, uh, and, and as far as I'm concerned, puts you uh, head and shoulders above the average person out there. And I'm, the average pastor. I'd put half of you up against, guys and gals, up against any pastor out there. Uh, simply because of the fact that you, you have been raised on doctrine. And doctrine is the missing element today. And when you don't have doctrine, you're going to have heresy. It's just that simple. And uh, so we, 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 we build you that way here. It's absolutely imperative that when you're building your Christian life, doctrine is the key. And the word doctrine, as you know, means to teach what specifically the Bible is teaching. And so we, we deal with it from there. Now, the first one we're going to look at here will be, uh, be the seven mysteries. We're going to start with that. Now, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, and let's look at the verse here. Now, through this study, hopefully, you're going to see that I'm, I'm telling you the truth when I'm telling you how messed up everything is. Because we're going back to the Bible and following what the Bible says. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, it says this, Let a man show account of us as a minister of Christ and the stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Now, he's telling us there, and this is Paul writing to the church at Corinth, and he's telling us that we, as Christians, certainly as a pastor, I am to be in stewardship of the mysteries of God. Now, in the Bible, you have two sets of mysteries. You have, in Matthew, 12 mysteries that are given to the nation of Israel concerning the kingdom of heaven after they reject Christ and the truth. Those are the 12 mysteries given to Israel. 12 because there's 12 tribes of Israel. But Paul talks about the mysteries to the church. And you're going to find that there are seven mysteries that are given to the church. These mysteries given to the church will begin the eradication process of eliminating heresy out of your life. It begins the process of setting you on a course that you don't get off and you don't get messed up when it comes to um, getting the scriptures and getting doctrine the way it should be. And of course, uh, there's seven to the church because Revelation tells us that there's seven periods of church history. Now, I, again, I take a lot of flack. I get that. I understand. But I'm just going to tell you, flack or no flack, you couldn't find two preachers in this city who knew what these seven mysteries are, let alone two that are found faithful in teaching it. You just couldn't. Now, here's my dilemma. How do you rationalize what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, with pastors and churches and Christians' inability today to do that. It's just that simple. I think one of the reasons why people don't like me and like the way I teach is because I make it too simple for you. And you like to hide behind complexity. 
and I'll strip you of your complexity and put it right down like I just did. What part of that don't you understand? It says that we are to be stewards of the mysteries and be faithful in teaching them. If you're a pastor, when's the last time you taught them? You see how uncomplicated that is? I mean, it's just that simple. And people get upset at me because of that. Uh, they get upset because of the fact that I point out that, uh, that uh, we in Christianity as pastors aren't doing what we ought to be doing. I've been in the ministry almost 50 years. I've been pastoring for probably uh, 40-some years of that. I probably have taught this, the seven mysteries, uh, all of the mysteries, probably 60, 70, 80 times in that time, probably more than that. Why do I do that? Because I'm to be a steward of it. They're listed in my Bible. They're, I could, you, they're listed throughout my Bible. And the reason why there is is because of what Paul told them. Now, when it comes to the Bible, I'm a literalist. I believe that I'm supposed to do what it says. Now, I don't always do what it says, but I still believe I'm supposed to. And when it says that I'm to give an account, that's at the judgment seat of Christ, by the way. As a minister of Christ and to the stewards of the ministries of God, I'm going to give an account for that. And I'm to be found faithful in laying them out. Yet, I say it again, you couldn't find two pastors in this city who understand it, who will lay them out, or could even tell you what they are. Now, there's either something wrong with us or there's something wrong with the Bible. It's just that it doesn't get more complicated than that. And of course, um, you know, for me, it can be seen at a glance that the downfall of, of, of every nation in history, you know, every church in Christianity will be the unfaithful stewards. That'll be the pastors or the Christians who will not follow the Bible teaching and, and lay out doctrine as number one. This is why we, we've got that. Uh, I watched yesterday on the on the uh, on uh, the got the Navy SEAL that was presented the Medal of Honor by by uh, uh, by Trump. Uh, incredible guy, what he did, absolutely incredible, and uh, he's a hero in every sense of the word. But I watched at the end that uh, they had the chaplain come up and he closed in prayer, and uh, he prayed, you know, the typical prayer. And uh, at the end, uh, he could not bring himself to close the prayer in Jesus' name. And that's because in Christianity today, everybody will accept God. God is a, you can make God a marshmallow. God can be like your, your internet and your phone in a cloud someplace. You know, it's a thing where it's, it's you know, and that's an interesting thing too, you know. Uh, the judgment seat of Christ, second rapture of the church, he comes in a cloud. And then we go to the judgment seat of Christ. I, I certainly hope that not everything we've text is in those clouds that he brings with him. But I got a feeling they're going to be. Every once in a while, the world just gets kind of close to it, but then loses it. It takes somebody who can figure out the Bible to think, where did they come up with the idea that all this stuff that we do is in a cloud someplace? And when he comes back, He's coming in the clouds. Then we're going to the judgment seat of Christ. Well, all he has to do is open up the clouds. Probably just me. Every heresy that you could imagine will be totally destroyed by the systematic theology of the seven series. 
It's what keeps us straight. And the first one I want to talk about is, I'm going to give you the seven mysteries, and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about them. The first mystery uh, recorded is the virgin birth. The second one is the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. The third one is the Jew and the Gentile in one body. The fourth one is the restoration of the nation of Israel. The fifth one is the rapture of the church. The sixth one is the Antichrist. And the seventh one is the Babylon mystery religion. Now, honestly, every heresy, the heresies within the body of Christ and the heresies without the body of Christ, unsaved teachers, are corrected in these first seven. The rest of it is icing on the cake. But these seven uh, mysteries here are, are the key. And uh, they are absolutely will nail down uh, and begin the process of correcting bad teaching that you get into. So let's look at the first one here, the virgin birth. And for that, we want to come over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now it says in verse 16, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Now, This first mystery of how Christ came down and became a man. Everybody today has no clue of being able to explain that. And we get the idea in a kind of a blase sense that, uh, you know, that Christ just came down and, 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 and but, but, you have a lot of heresy connected with it. A lot of people teach that Jesus Christ is a lesser God. And uh, your new Bibles will uh, do that. Uh, your King James Bible says in the book of John, no man, seen as, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. That's what your King James Bible says in John chapter 1. If you have an NIV, it says this. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God. It took out begotten Son and made Jesus Christ the begotten God. Now that heresy started back in the first, second century. It comes out of Alexandria. And it's the teaching that Jesus Christ was uh, another God, a lesser God. That he wasn't very God himself. And uh, it's one of those things where... Um, Jehovah Witnesses believe that. Uh, the Mormons believe that. Every heresy out there, uh, it begins and starts with the fact that they don't believe that Jesus Christ was very God. And most of God's people believe he was very God, but they wouldn't have a clue to be able to explain it because they don't understand the mystery. Now, here's what God did. I'm going to put it into an easy, 
understandable format. Here's what God did. The Bible says God is a spirit. God doesn't have a body as we know it. God the Father. God is a spirit. And the Bible says, as we've been studying, we that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. So God is a spirit. If you want to have worship with Him, it takes your spirit lining up with God, who is a spirit, through the medium of truth, the Word of God. There lies your worship. And there's no worship outside of that. And, of course, we know we're screwed up on that, too. Now, here's what God did. God had a plan. That plan goes back, who knows where it started in God's mind and God's heart. Probably was always there. God's original purpose was having a universe of sinless beings that loved him uh, and would, would, would choose to love him, by which when he started his uh, in eternal plan that he'd have a, a whole group of people that would just want to be with him and love with him, and he would go on, and as every fairy tale story that you hear from the earth here, we'd live happily ever after. But God is a spirit. So here's what God had to do. This is Proverbs chapter 8, which is without a doubt the deepest chapter in the Bible, bar none. Here's what he did. Sometime in the distant past, I don't know when. I don't know when it was. But sometimes in the distant past, it was certainly before Genesis chapter, um, the latter half of Genesis chapter 1. But sometime in the distant past, God's plan necessitated that God have fellowship with man. And God could not fellowship with man because God is a spirit. So what God did, according to Proverbs chapter 8, at some point, God manifested himself, that's the verse there, God manifested himself, and as he manifested himself, he stepped out of the Godhead, and God manifests himself as the Son of God. It wasn't that God created a lesser God. It was that God manifested himself into another form, which now could be seen of men that had an image of God, which was the spiritual side, and also had a likeness, which was a body. So to fulfill God's plan, he had to step out of that Godhead and manifest himself as a man. That's what the verse is saying. This is a mystery. God was manifested in the flesh. In other words, where did that happen? Now, most people think that that happened when he came down and died. And, of course, uh, he did in the person of Jesus Christ through his birth. But you find Jesus Christ showing up in the Old Testament long before Christ shows up in the Incarnation. He's known as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. He's the one that talked to Moses face to face. He's the one that Joshua saw when they crossed over Jordan there. Uh, he is the one that Abraham fellowshiped with in Genesis 18 and 19. Uh, he's the one that uh, you find that uh, all down through uh, the Old Testament when he pops up and shows up called the angel of the Lord, sometimes the angel of the Lord's host. That's him. So in the Old Testament, he has some kind of, of a body that was a manifestation of God that he gave himself to Israel. When we move into the New Testament times, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, God now knows that Israel is, has rejected and they're not going to change their position. So 
what he does now is he knows that he's going to move into the church age. He's going to do what he is going to do. And he knows now he has to manifest himself as the Son of God in a human form. And this is where God is manifested in the flesh. John chapter 1 is one of the most damaging chapters anywhere in the Bible to all of the people that want to have all the new Bibles because it says there in John chapter 1, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now, if that's true, and here again, I'm just a Bible believer. If you have more than one Bible that's the Word of God, then how did He manifest Him? How did the Word of God make manifest in the flesh without having a number of different Jesuses? There's only one Jesus, and there's only one Word. It's just not simple. But you see, that's too simple for you, because you've been educated out of your intelligence, and you don't have any ability to grasp simple facts. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. One Word, one flesh, not a thousand Bibles out there that differ in 60,000 places and all add up to the same Jesus. I don't think so. Maybe in your, maybe in your opium pipe dreams it does, but it doesn't when it comes to Bible doctrine. God was manifested in the flesh. So He comes down. He manifests Himself. Jehovah Witnesses have a time of this. Now they'll, they'll take the position, well, how could you say that Jesus Christ was God? Uh, do you, uh, uh, are you, uh, um, He was His Son. How can you be a son to somebody and still be that person? Well, gee, let me think about that for a moment. God can do anything? How will that work for you? They grasped the fact that when God manifested Himself as the Son, He did it for a reason. He did it for a reason. And He did it for a reason because of the fact that He wanted to give us a model of what our relationship should be. So when God manifested Himself as a Son, He took the position of Christ the Son, even though He was God, and God the Father, and then through that, the Son, who was God all the time, manifested in the flesh, lived a life of obedience to the Father, so you and I would read it and have a model, the best model. I mean, there's lots of great models of relationships in the Bible you can study. You know what the best one is? The Lord Jesus Christ. So he, was, he did so many things. A Jehovah Witness can't get that. And of course, uh, he did that because of the fact that you know, he came down to die on the cross that he might establish a church that was going to be called his body. Because there's a bigger part to God's plan than just God coming down and dying on the cross and everybody going to heaven and picking up a harp and a white robe and having a great time for all of eternity. God's plan is bigger, has a bigger scope than that. And what God wanted to do is he's giving us the model of what our relationship should be by giving us the model uh, of himself by manifesting himself into a, a body that you and I could identify with God through Christ. So he's the mediator because if God was just a spirit and you were driving down the street and this gigantic booming voice come out of the thunder of a mountain, it'd scare you to death. So he had to identify with that. He had to identify with that. I remember one time Paul Harvey, uh, who's dead now, but he was a born-again believer. I remember one time Paul Harvey was telling a story around Christmas time of how that uh, this guy uh, had a wife and kids, and he was an atheist. He didn't believe in God. And it was Christmas time, and his wife and kids were going to Christmas service, and they wanted him to go, and he wouldn't go. 
And so he sat there drinking his coffee, looking out the window, it was snowing down there. And he saw this little bird, a little sparrow, that was shivering out there right on the ledge of the window and, 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 and just going to die. And he had a little stroke of compassion. So he, he opened the window and, and put a piece of bread out there. It flew off. It came back, and he, he wanted to get that bird out of the element so it would, wouldn't die. And the bird just, every time he opened a window or made a, a gesture, the bird would just fly off. And he's so frustrated, and it, it just kind of consumed him. And he says to himself, how in the world am I going to get that little bird to understand that I'm trying to help him, and I got here, and he's going to die if he doesn't, how in the world, he said, and he got thinking, he said, you know what, I don't know what to do. The only way I could get that little bird to understand who I am and what I'm trying to do is to become a little bird. And right at that moment, the church bells rang, and God's Holy Spirit smote him at his heart, and God said, that's exactly what I did. I came down, and nobody could understand who I was. So you know what I had to do? I had to become man. So through that manifestation of being a man, you would understand what God wanted you to do. That's why when you got saved, Jesus Christ lives inside you. That's why he is the mediator between you and God. He is the bridge between God and man. And that's what he does. And so the manifestation of Christ coming down um, is, is beautiful. Isaiah says, and this is another tough time, Isaiah says that he came through a virgin. Now all the new Bibles, uh, that's Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 9, all the new, or our 6, wherever it's at. Is it 9? 9, 7. 9, yeah. So all the new Bibles take virgin out and put in a young woman. And it shows you that, that uh, it says there in Isaiah that this is a sign a virgin shall conceive. Now that's a sign. For a virgin to conceive, that's a sign. But all the new Bibles take out virgin and say this is a sign a woman shall conceive. Well, that ain't no sign. If that's the truth, man, half this church is, 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 is more spiritual than they think you are. But, but see, that's what they do. And that destroys the doctrine. So, the manifestation of Christ is, is, the virgin birth is absolutely key. And it opens up so many other doctrines. So many other doctrines. And it's a thing where once you realize that Christ, uh, the reason why he came the way he did, he came the way he did is the fact that he, uh, he wanted to manifest himself to man. And he was very God, but yet he, is, he, is, he, was, he was a man. In the Bible, you're going to find two terms, the Son of God and the Son of Man. The Son of Man will always deal with the physical side or the human side. The Son of God will always deal with the God side. You have to know those things. And in, uh, in, uh, you know, you're going to find in the, in the book of Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, he is portrayed as the Son of Man. In John, he's portrayed as the Son of God. In Matthew, he's portrayed as the King of the Jews. Uh, and uh, it, it just follows itself right through the Bible. Uh, I'm sorry, in Luke he's portrayed as a son of man. In Mark he's portrayed as a servant, that is. Uh, he's portrayed as the, Matthew as the king. In Mark he's portrayed as a servant. In Luke he's portrayed as a human man, a son of man, and then John the son of God. That's why in the book of Luke you'll have his human genealogy going back uh, through the human line. And it's, a, it's, it's an incredible <coughs> setup the way it goes. 
And God wants us to understand this is a mystery. Why did God do it the way He wanted to do it? And honestly, if you want to take it on beyond farther than that, He stepped out of the Godhead, became the Son of God. Comes up through the Old Testament, get into the New Testament, and now He comes down and dwells in you through a new birth, and you become a Son of God. When we get into eternity and God's plan is fulfilled, the book of Ephesians says at some point, at some point, Jesus Christ as a Son of God will go back into the Godhead and cease to exist. And the reason why He will cease to exist is because there's no need for Him anymore because now there will be a hundred million sons of God, you and me, born into the family of God, born into God's body, the Son of God that will take His place. And then God's plan carries on from there. So it's a mystery. It's a mystery that's unheard of today. And because people don't understand that, they have a very shallow, limited concept of what God is doing and the plan of God. I would say that the mystery of godliness is probably the single greatest key to what God has been doing eternity past, now, and eternity future. And it shows you exactly, when you put all the pieces together, why God did what He did, that He was manifested. He wasn't he wasn't a lesser God. He was manifested as the Son of God. And, of course, uh, that's all part of God's plan. So you want to understand that the, the first mystery is the mystery of godliness. How did God and why did God become man? What was His purpose? What was He trying to accomplish? The second one, where we found in Colossians chapter 1, uh, verse 27... And it says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 27, and by the way, tomorrow, carrying on with our study in Proverbs, I'm going to give you a complete breakdown of the book of Colossians. And you're going to go away tomorrow understanding how that fits into your relationship and your walk with God. It'll be, uh, it'll be tomorrow is probably going to be a very impacting day for you getting a lot of truth about. So Colossians is going to be uh, one of the things you're going to get done tomorrow. Verse uh, uh, 25, Colossians 1.25, Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you to fulfill uh, the word of God. Even the mystery which has been hid from ages and generations but now is made manifest to his saints to whom God would make known what is the riches of, his, of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now the second mystery is the mystery of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. In you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And most people that claim to be saved, now I get it, new Christians, I get that, I understand. But I've met people that have been saved 10, 15, 20 years. And they claim to be saved. But if you asked them and gave them a Bible and show, asked them to show you what happened the day they got saved that made them a Christian, the actual process, they couldn't do it. 
and uh, it's a thing where something, I asked him, I said, what, what was different about you from the moment, the last moment you were unsaved till the next moment when you asked Christ to save you, what changed about you? What was the process? What happened that took you from the old life to the new life, out of the darkness into the light? Explain to me the process that did that. They haven't got a clue. They haven't got a clue because pastors have failed to teach this mystery. They're not stewards of it. And they know the terminology. Well, I w- and I hear it all the time. Well, what, what happened? I got born again. No, 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 no. Well I, well, I got saved. Well, I trusted Christ. I know, I know. That doesn't tell me what happened. That's just another term for what did take place. Tell me, from the last moment that you were a sinner to the next glorious moment that you're now a Christian through the prayer, what actually changed about you? What took you from darkness to light? Was it just he turned the light on? What changed inside your body? What changed between your body, your soul, and your spirit? What actually transpired that made you a new creature in Christ Jesus? And, of course, the answer is the mystery of, mystery of godliness, or the mystery here of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And, of course, this is the one where a lot of God's people just struggle, struggle, struggle with losing their salvation. And um, uh, I, I get it. it, it, it uh, the, the fear of losing your salvation has to be one of the most terrible feelings to have, especially if you want to go to heaven and you think that, you know, that you can do something that now you'll lose it. And of course, uh, it, it's, it, it all comes down to somebody not understanding what happened. If you know what happened the day you got saved, and you have this mystery down, this doctrine, you would never struggle with losing your salvation again. This is the importance of a pastor, churches, teaching the mysteries. This will eradicate any emotional feelings you have that, I don't think I'm saved, or uh, maybe I'm not saved today, or maybe this, or maybe that. Or you start running through the Bible, finding all those verses that look like you can lose it. And it all comes back to the same thing. You know nothing about the Bible. You've been potholing the Bible for 15 years. You've been hanging out with the wrong Bible teachers, hanging out with the wrong crowd who doesn't know the Bible any better than you do. And so you get all of these concepts floating around, and and none of them are based on doctrine. You know what they're based on? Your feelings. Your emotions. Your emotions run amok. They run you everywhere you go. You feel good today. Oh, yeah, man, me and Jesus. And then tomorrow, oh, I don't know if I'm saved. How do you know you're really saved? I read that verse. That scares me to death. The only verses that ought to scare you to death as a Christian is the one concerning the judgment seat of Christ. Everything else ought to be, even though it ought to be a blessing to you. At least the judgment seat of Christ, when I get whacked, I'm going to know I get whacked for deserving of getting whacked. I can live with that. We all get whacked now when we don't deserve it. The best thing about the judgment seat of Christ, yeah, we're all going to get whacked. I'm going to get whacked. But you know what? It'll be the right whacking. There's a blessing in the right whacking. Now notice it says in verse 26, even the mystery that hath been hid from ages and generations. In other words, it wasn't revealed anywhere in the Old Testament. This is one of the things that you find in studying the Bible that God didn't reveal the church to anybody. 
Uh, he didn't. Romans chapter 16 tells you that, that the, the, the idea of the church was in God's heart. He didn't tell anybody about it. This is why it gets confusing to people when they get into the book of Acts. This is why you have so many goofy people that speak in tongues or think you've got to be baptized based on Acts 2.38 or get caught up in, in those places that it actually looks like you know, somebody did lose their salvation. And the problem is they don't have any doctrine in their life. They're running on emotions. Their whole life is reading a verse and saying, oh, I think this means that, or boy, I hope it doesn't mean that. They don't have the wherewithal to understand the context of the Scriptures. And you'll get clobbered every time. The devil will see to it. And of course, the key here is the mystery of God dwelling in the bodies of sinful people like you and me. That's a mystery. And, and no pastor that knows how to explain that. I, in the Bible, you'll find two things. We talk about it all the time. Last week, I, I, I actually walked you through your standing and state. And if you got that down, you got a big piece of the puzzle. Understanding the difference between your standing in Christ Jesus and your state in Christ Jesus. There is the beginning of the understanding of the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. What is your standing in Christ Jesus? What is your, what is your state in Christ Jesus? They're two different things, both dealing with your relationship with Christ. And I laid them out for you last Sunday. Of course, some of you didn't bother to come last Sunday, so you know what? Here you are. Now you scratch your head back there and say, I think I'm lost. Well, maybe you are. Anyway, but that's beside the point. And then this goes in with Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. The, turn over to Colossians chapter 2, since we're right here in this chapter. Uh, look, look at chapter 2. Verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men and after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. Four things in the church today have replaced the Word of God. One is the philosophy. Two is the vain deceit. Three is the traditions of men. That's man-made doctrine. And of course, uh, the rudiments of the world. None of those things are connected with Christ, if you look at the end of the verse. For in Him, Christ, uh, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him which is head of all principality and power, in whom also, here it comes, in Christ, you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism. Now this is one of the seven baptisms we'll look into when we get to it. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also, and that's not water, by the way, See, you're going to find out when you get into the seven baptisms, most of them are not having to do with water. And this is why so many people get messed up on the baptism of the Holy Ghost or the baptism for salvation. They don't understand there's seven baptisms in the Bible. But that's okay. We'll get there. Buried with him in baptism, uh, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. Now, two words here. It says, first of all, the operation of God in a circumcision made without hands. Well, we know that a circumcision is based on the Old Testament where uh, on the eighth day they took a male and they circumcised his flesh uh, on, the, on a part of his anatomy that had to do with his birth or giving birth. And it's a physical picture of what took place spiritually when you got saved. Notice that it had to do on the eighth day, and that is because eight in the Bible is the number of new beginnings. 
And when you got spiritually circumcised, you became a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. And so the spiritual circumcision is the, is, when you understand it, is the thing that will completely destroy the doctrine of you losing your salvation or ever thinking you could lose it or anything remotely connected with any heresy that goes along with it. When you got saved, and this is the mystery, how Christ could dwell in in saved sinners, you and me. How how the perfect Holy Spirit of God could dwell in me. Okay, here's how it works. I'm much better at stick men, but this is where we're at here today. Now, this is your body. Inside your body, you have another body. It's shaped just like your physical body. This is your soul. Inside that, you have a third addition, which is the spirit. Spirit of man. Now, when you got saved, before you got saved, here was your problem. Your flesh was stuck to your soul. That's why in the Old Testament you'll find the word soul and body used interchangeably. Because in the Old Testament they were stuck together. So you'll find where he talks about a soul and uh, or he'll talk about a body because they're used interchangeably because they're one in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, this mystery comes into the church. It had never been revealed before. Colossians chapter 2 says, the moment you got saved, there was an operation of God that took place that cut apart through a spiritual circumcision. Remember, spiritual circumcision is the cutting of the foreskin of the flesh, removing it, the flesh. So what he did was, he cut. He cut through the operation of God, spiritual circumcision. He spiritually circumcised your flesh. from your soul. Now you have your flesh over here, your body, and your soul over here is now separated. Paul talks about Romans chapter 7 now, the idea of an old nature and a new nature. The old nature will be your flesh that you have to contend with. The new nature will be your soul, which now is separated from that. On top of that, when he did that, The Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God comes down and now takes up residency inside your soul. And the Bible says He not only takes up residency, He seals you. You're sealed. Your soul right now as we speak is sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. And I got some terrible news for you. You can't break the seal. You're sealed. What people don't understand is they still have their flesh, which will give you all kinds of problems. And because they don't understand that they have been separated through a spiritual circumcision by the seed, the Word of God, 
they don't realize that the soul now is sinless, and that's where God dwells. And this is how He lives inside you and me right now, even though we're all still sinners. He doesn't dwell in my flesh. Romans 7 says that nothing in my flesh is any good. He dwells in my soul, which is separated from my flesh, Colossians 2, and is sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, and that's where I'm at today. So 1 John chapter 3 says, The soul, uh, he that is born of God, doth not commit sin, because his seed, Holy Spirit of God, Word of God, remaineth in him. Now that simple little deal is rejected by every Baptist preacher out there today. I've heard them laugh at the doctrine of spiritual circumcision. And yet they don't, if you pinned them down and, and said, tell me what happened the day you got saved, all you'd get is more dribble. They don't have an answer. The answer is found in the Bible in the seven mysteries, the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. How does a holy God live inside somebody like you and me? He can't unless he separates what is wicked from what is eternal, saves what is eternal, seals it with his Holy Spirit of God, and now Romans chapter 7, you have an old nature and you have a new nature. Now, the only thing saved about you is your soul. Your flesh is not saved, and your spirit is not saved. You're told over there in Corinthians that you're to cleanse yourself from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. How do you do that? Because he gave you the Holy Spirit of God. Now the Holy Spirit of God, your spirit in you, is your human spirit. It's like the rudder of a ship. Whatever way, whatever you lend your spirit to is the way you're going to go. Uh, you're going to find that when you take, as a saved man or woman, when you take your spirit and you give it to the things of the world, that's the way your flesh is going to go. And the Bible says that your soul, which is sinless, is grieved. The Holy Spirit of God says, I do not want to go there again tonight. Will you quit breathing that stuff into me? Wherever you put your spirit to is where you go. When you align your spirit with God's spirit through the word of God and doctrine, then you have victory over the flesh, and it's your spirit with God's spirit, and you walk the way God wants you to go. It all comes down, once you're saved, what are you going to do with your spirit? That's why you better get the right church, and you better quit hanging out with the wrong Christians. You better quit hanging out with the world, you quit, better quit hanging out with all of the stuff that's going to lend your spirit to go the wrong way. And the mystery here is how in the world does a holy God live inside somebody as wretched and rotten as I am? And the answer is the only way he can do because he had to separate the two. He comes in and takes up residency. What know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. You're not showing your body with a price. He seals you under the day of redemption. Not till tomorrow when you worry about it. You see how these, you get these down? Takes every heresy out of your life. You don't have to worry about a thing. And of course, this is, the, this is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the mystery of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Now, there's two aspects to that. There's the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And there's the infilling Holy Spirit of God. I want you to understand these two. 
you're always, after you're saved, you're always indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Everybody understand that? But you're not always filled with the Holy Spirit of God. You understand that? The, the indwelling Holy Spirit of God is there forever. The filling of the Holy Spirit of God is your daily filling based on where you yield your spirit. And when you yield your spirit to the Word of God, then you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God to do the work of God. Two different aspects to it. Nobody knows that today. And because they don't, they confuse. Well, I, I, I just, oh, I, I think I can lose my salvation. I think I, I may have lost my salvation. No, that's because you're not filled with the Holy Spirit of God and you don't know the difference between the filling of the Holy Spirit of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. If you're saved, you're always indwelt. But you're not always maybe filled. And when you're not filled, you know what you do? You come back to the Bible doctrine and you make it right with God and then you pump it up. You get filled. You let the Holy Spirit of God fill you, filled with the Spirit of God. And of course, you get filled with the Spirit of God by the Word of God. Nothing more. Nothing more. Uh, it's just that simple. It's the Word of God. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. That's what it takes. It starts with the book in your life, the doctrine, and making those doctrines everything in your life, and nothing, nothing, nothing. Now, I'm not saying you won't have bad days. I'm not say you won't do stupid things, but I'm saying nothing will stop you. When you fall down, you'll get back up. When you fall down, you won't stay down. It'll be the thing that God always will take that He can, no matter where you go or what you get into, because you have doctrine in your life, God can squeeze your heart and bring the tears to your eyes to bring you back. Amen. It's when there's no doctrine there that you have the problem. I've seen Christians all my life. And, you know, it used to be a great mystery to me why you'd see two Christians, one of them would get out of fellowship with God in a pretty good way, fashion, and uh, be out there for a little bit. And then, God reach out and bring them back. Then you have somebody else who, same type of Christian, get out there and they never come back. And I used to look at that and say, why one and why not the other? And the answer is so simple now that when you figure it all out. The answer is one of them put the Bible doctrine in their life so God had something to work with to bring them back. The other one never did, so God got nothing to work with. You think he's going to bring you back because he likes you? And he may like you. You think he's going to bring you back because you're a nice person and he can't get on with life without you? He's going to bring you back because you put something in your life and dedicated yourself and put a foundation of doctrine and it's on that basis that he'll bring you back. When you don't put anything in, you're on your own. And that is a great answer why you see so many people come to church, stick around for a while, never do anything, in and out all the time, and you never see him again. And yet, they're saved, probably. It goes back to what I said. You've got to give God something to work with in your life. You can't have a Bible in one hand and a beer in the other. You can't do with the world in one foot and, and, and the church in the other. That, God has to have something in your life that you build into it. No matter where you go, it's your insurance policy. He'll always bring you back. We're going to screw up. We are. It's, a, it's stupid to think we're not. But what's the difference between two people who screw up and one goes out and never comes back and the other one does? The answer is what you built into your life before. What he's got to work with. It's just that simple. So this is a great one. 
the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, Christ in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it's one that really shows you what really happened the day you got saved. Why you could never, 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 never lose your salvation. I understand that concept, and it's a scary concept, and I understand that uh, the people who who feel those ways and struggle with those things are people who are very good people many times, but they have no doctrine. They've spent all of their life getting things about the Bible and never getting the Bible. And the devil will play heyday with that in your life. The only thing that will keep you between the white lines, listen to me, the only, and even then it's tough, but the, if there's any chance for you and me to stay between the white lines, there's only one way it's going to happen. Doctrine. Doctrine will hold your feet to the fire and keep you accountable. That's why people don't like it today. That's why churches got rid of it. You couldn't do half the things they do in churches today if they were teaching doctrine. So they get rid of it. That's why all the churches take Baptists off their name. That's why the evangelicals thrive today. There's no doctrine. Be whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Have fun. You're a Christian. There's no rules. And of course, that's exactly where we're at. All right, let's look at the third one. Let's try to get three of them in today. And the third one will be found over there in Ephesians chapter 5. And it says, in Ephesians 5, you know what you have here. You all, most of you that have been married, this was read at your, your wedding, and you all understand that Ephesians 5 is dealing with uh, the husband-wife relationship as pictured with Christ in the church. It's a great passage. But he says down here in verse 32, uh, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now this mystery has to do with one of the fundamental doctrines of the Bible of the Jew and the Gentile uh, being in one body. And this is totally unheard of today. And again, <clears throat> I don't know what to tell you. Turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Pick it up in verse 26. <clears throat> For ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as you have been baptized into Christ to put on Christ. That baptism there is not water. Seven of them in the Bible. Oh, we'll get into that one. We'll, we'll probably get into those here in the next section, next ones we do, not, next, not this section, but the next section. We'll do the seven baptisms. <clears throat> now here, look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. <clears throat> Greek is a Gentile. <clears throat> there is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you're all one 
<coughs> in Christ Jesus. Now that verse says that at the body of Christ, which is explained in the book of Ephesians, <coughs> is made up of <coughs> Jew and Gentiles in one body. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <coughs> I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. <coughs> Verse 13. <clears throat> For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Now, do you see how <clears throat> we're already beginning to cross over? We haven't gotten into the seven baptisms yet, yet I've given you three or four verses on baptisms that aren't water. This is what they do. They cross over and they interlock. And they all bond themselves together. <clears throat> For by one Spirit, that's the Spirit of God, are we all baptized into one body. This has nothing to do with water. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, we have been all made to drink of one spirit. Now, <clears throat> the teaching is today that, uh, well, in the world today, we have two classes of people. We have Jews and we have Gentiles. And <clears throat> it doesn't matter if you're black, yellow, red, white, purple. It, it doesn't matter. If you're not a Jew, you are a Gentile. And it's a thing where that, uh, those are the two people groups that you have. We talked about this many, many times when we came through the first section on the Bible. In the Old Testament, God had a plan for <clears throat> the nation of Israel. And the whole history of the Old Testament, history of the world, <clears throat> is that all the Gentile nations can only get God and the blessings of God through the nation of Israel. So in the Old Testament, which is the kingdom of God, a physical kingdom, <clears throat> The Gentile who wanted to find God had to become a Jew. He had to systematically, in a physical sense, become part of the nation of Israel. These are called proselytes in the Bible. And he had to become a Jew through a system of proselytization where he physically, in the kingdom of heaven, had to cut his hair, follow the dietary laws, follow the law, and do everything that the Jew did. And that is the only way he could find God you'll notice that there were no Old Testament scriptures in Amalekite or in uh, Jebusite or in Babylonia. They're all in Hebrew because the only way to get the truth of God was to come through the Hebrew Bible and the Hebrew nation. So in the Old Testament, everything runs through, uh, in a physical kingdom of heaven, it runs through the nation of Israel. So I say it again. If you were a a Malachite, a Hittite, a Jebusite, whatever the case, you had to, you wanted to find God, you had to become a proselyte Jew. The great example of this is the book of Ruth. She's a Moabite. And she comes to God and becomes part of the nation of Israel. And there she finds Boaz and uh, she becomes <coughs> part of the nation of Israel through that proselytization process. <coughs> when we move into the New Testament, it just reverses. And where a Gentile, for all practical purpose, in a physical sense, had to become part of the nation of Israel in the New Testament, now we're in the kingdom of God. And that's a spiritual kingdom. And where the Gentiles had to come uh, to God through Israel, now in the, in the New Testament, the time that we're living in now, the Jew has to come 
and be part of the spiritual kingdom of God. And he becomes a Christian. We live in a world today where that's totally unheard of because we have no doctrine and because we have not been stewards of the mysteries of God. I don't know how many times over the years I've read a commentary on Hebrews where the writer will say that because he doesn't know what to do with Hebrews. I mean, it's a, the white elephant in the front room. He doesn't know what to do with it. He has to boil it down a little bit to make it understandable. So he says, well, that book was written to Hebrew Christians. And of course, he says that like there were Hebrew Christians. And of course, that's not true. Not based on this doctrine. There are no Hebrew Christians. We have a lot of groups out there. I, 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 I just, you know, Messianic Christians. Well, I'm part of a Jewish Christian Messianic group. Okay. What does that mean? That means that I am a Jew. I'm looking for the Messiah, but I become a Christian. Now, I get a lot of flack over this. I do. And a lot of people would not agree with, because they want to believe what they want to believe. And it's easy to do that. It's tough if you really stay with the Bible. And uh, it's a thing where um, Jesus Christ is not my Messiah. He's not my Messiah. I'm sorry. He's Israel's Messiah. And he's Israel's Messiah in an Old Testament sense to the nation of Israel. He's their Messiah. He's not my Messiah. Um, he's in me and I'm in him. I'm one with him. And, uh, but that, because you don't know the doctrine, you get this idea that Jesus, you know, the, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Jew, Jewish Christian uh, who believes in the coming Messiah. Um, that's like saying spot the big red brown little dog that comes over to see me every once in a while. He doesn't exist. And there's no such thing as a Hebrew Christian. I'm sorry to say this. I know it's not popular. But the Bible hasn't been popular for a long time. I just gave you two verses. The Bible says, in Christ, in Christ. Hello, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. You're a Christian. I don't know how else simpler to get. There are no such things as Jewish Christians. There are Jews who get saved, and then they quit being a Jew and become a Christian. I'm a Gentile. When I got saved, I ceased being a Gentile. I'm a new creature in Christ Jesus. I'm seated in heavenly places. I may be in this world, but I'm not of this world anymore. I'm an ambassador of Christ now. I'm seated in heavenly places. I'm down here to do a job, but I don't look at this world as my home. I'm a Gentile by birth, but I got a new birth, a second birth that put me a creature in Christ Jesus, and now I'm a Christian. So I may be a Gentile by birth, but the second birth took me out of that. And you may have been a Jew, but when you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior, you're no longer a Jew. You're now a Christian. You're no more a Jew than I am still a Gentile. Because in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Say, so I don't believe that. Anybody got an exacto cutter here? Cut it out of your Bible. My advice to you. Keep it. Because going the way you're going, there's going to be a lot of things you're going to cut out. So it's my gift to you. And just bring them to the judgment seat of Christ and sprinkle them out like a little salt and pepper all over the throne and you'll be fine. In Christ Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. You're a Christian. The Jew and Gentile in the 
spiritual sense. And see, there again, there's the difference between that whole thing is built on the understanding of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is the, is the physical kingdom that Israel had. The kingdom of God is the one that you and I were born into. And just as a proselyte Jew, in a physical sense, a Gentile wanting to get to God had to adapt to what was the Old Testament standard, the kingdom of heaven. In the New Testament, for a Jew to get Christ, he's got to adapt to the New Testament standard. Jew and Gentile in one body. And that's a mystery. That's a mystery because nobody believes it today. Uh, they actually run around thinking that. And it's because of the fact that we have not been stewards of the mysteries of God. It's because of the fact that we have not followed everything that uh, we're supposed to follow. And it's it caused the mess that we're in today. And the funniest thing is people who are shooting off their mouth actually think they know what they're talking about. Right up to the point that they come to a Thursday night Bible study. Right up to the point that they try to shoot. I, I don't care. I don't care what you think you know, but in this church, you try to teach something it isn't right, brother, it'll be, it'll be out in the street at the high noon with six guns on because of the fact that the truth is truth. And I'm not interested in your goofy little teachings. I'm not interested in your goofy heresy. I'll throw you a Bible and you walk me through and show me that. Show me in the Bible. Show me in the Bible where you have a Jew in the church Pass the book of Acts, show me in the Bible, in Paul's writings, where you have a Jew who is a Christian Jew. Just show me, one time. I'll give you $100 million. You say you don't have that much money. I get it together before you find the verse. Doesn't happen. He says, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. And that is the great mystery of the Jew and the Gentile in the church age being in one body. I'm not a Gentile anymore. You're not a Jew. We're now Christians in his body, part of his church. It would be the most inaccurate, undoctrinal heresy to teach that a Jew under the Old Testament kingdom of heaven could actually become part of the kingdom of God. You are out of your mind, but then you don't know anything about your Bible. You don't see the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, so you're trapped. You're trapped with your little goofy little ideas that you got that you couldn't support, and if somebody put a gun to your head and gave you three to give the answer, your brains would be all over the wall because you don't know anything about the Scriptures. And I want you to know these do doctrine will save your hide. It'll keep you from getting into the goofy, stupid, dumb, ridiculous stuff that's being taught today. Well, we got one more. I'm going to get one more in today. This will be an easy one. This won't take us long. Turn over to Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11. My goal is to get through these at a reasonable pace so we don't stay here for the next 20 years. Now, the book of Romans is the key book for you and for me as Christians. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all to Israel. You have the book of Acts. The word for Acts is the Acts of the Apostles. It's what the Apostles are doing as they transition from the nation of Israel to uh, the body of Christ through a process. Two key chapters in the book of Acts that the book is divided around will be Acts chapter 7 and Acts chapter 20. Everything to the nation of Israel up to Acts chapter 7 and from 8 on it transitions. By the time you get to Acts chapter 20, the church age is in full swing. 
And uh, you're going to find that the next book after Acts is the book of Romans. Romans is given in the order that it's given because he shows you two, uh, four historical books, then a transitional book. Then he gives you the beginning book that tells you now, since we're now fully in the church age, Acts chapter 20, what the church is to believe. Uh, the church gets a doctrine of what we believe out of the book of Romans. Every other book that Paul writes will come back to the book of Romans because Romans is the bedrock doctrine for you and me in the New Testament church. Romans is a tough book to really get down. I probably had to go through it seven or eight times before I got a handle on it. And uh, I go through it twice a year just to stay up on it. But it's the thing where uh, Romans is the fundamental book that will give you the doctrine of why we believe what we believe. And in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceit, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles shall come in. And so shall all Israel be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion a deliverer, and shall turn away the ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sin. That covenant that he's talking about is found in Hebrews chapter 8. has to do with Israel. So here's what you got. This is the mystery that is given to us as the church, that of the restoration of the nation of Israel. God is not finished with the nation of Israel. God has, God has hid himself from Israel because of the blindness of their rejection of Matthew chapter uh, 12 and 13, and then again uh, in Acts chapter 7. And uh, you'll find that after Acts chapter 7, uh, God is finished temporarily with the nation of Israel and then moves on through a transition into, through Paul into the church age, which where we're at now. And it's easy... It's easy for us as Gentiles, who don't like the Jews anyhow, to think that God is all finished with them. Every cult on the planet, including the Roman Catholic Church, believes and teaches that God is finished with the Jew. Catholic Church teaches that. Jehovah Witnesses teach that. Mormons teach that. The Seventh-day group teaches that. Charismatics teach that. Everybody teaches that false doctrine. And the reason why they do is because they all believe that they have taken the place of the nation of Israel and they have replaced it because God's finished with them. When you get into the book of Romans, which is the bedrock doctrine of what you and I are to believe in this church, and I taught Romans to you a number of years ago. It's on the website. Probably the best job I would ever do. I don't think I'd ever do it. I don't think I could beat what I did back then. I just, it was, and the Lord just gave us a good, but it's there for the record and people go through it all the time. But he tells us in Romans chapter 11 that God is not finished with the nation of Israel, that he's going to restore them. And we are, we're not to be ignorant of this mystery because Gentiles will get wise in their own conceits and think that God is finished with Israel and we have taken their place. And of course, he says blindness in part is coming to Israel. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where uh, he... Uh, um, Israel is blind to a, a certain extent, but um, it's going to 
it's it, it's going to uh, it's going to turn around. Turn over to uh, and this will also tell you that when you get into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I told you that all the illustrations there of everything that happens is all a picture of the nation of Israel. That's why you have a number of blind men uh, in those Gospels. And those blind men all picture the blind state uh, of the nation of Israel. Uh, come over to Matthew 13. I'm going to show you an example of one. I'm sorry, go to Mark 8. Oh, that's a better one. Now, it says here in Romans, Verse 25, Well, not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be, should be wise in your own conceits. Here it comes. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Now, that's simply saying that now in the church age, blindness in part. There are Jews who are going to trust Christ as their own personal Savior and become Christians. There are actually going to be Jews who do get saved and become part of the body which has neither Jew nor Gentile in it. So that's what he's saying. Let me show you the example of this. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And he cometh to Bethesda, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, and put his hands upon them, he asked him if he saw aught. And he said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up, and he was restored, and he saw every man clearly. Now, here's a man who is a picture in his blindness of the nation of Israel. And the first time Jesus touches him, he sees, but he doesn't see clearly. The second time Jesus touches him, second coming of Christ, look at the word, he gets restored, and he sees every man clearly. That's a picture of Romans chapter 11, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. That's a picture of this man representing Israel who during the, after the first coming of Christ doesn't see clearly, blindness in part, but at the second coming of Christ, the second time Jesus touches him, he sees every man clearly, and he's restored. That's the nation of Israel in the restoration. Now, it's examples like that all through the Bible that doctrines like this open up for you. And uh, it's one of those things that, uh, uh, that Israel is an incredible picture of what uh, God has not finished with them. And the restoration of the nation of Israel is one of the greatest doctrines in the Bible. Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11 are the two great chapters in the greatest book on doctrine to the church. Romans chapter 9 shows you why the Jews got in the mess that they're in. And Romans chapter 11 shows you that in spite of that, God is going to restore them. So you want to get those two chapters uh, together. Now, in between those chapters, 
just because you can't miss God. Chapter 9 is Israel, chapter 11 is the restoration of Israel, and chapter 10 is in the middle, and that is Gentile salvation to the church. Shall I put that in there? That's what he does. That's why I love the Bible. That's why I believe the Bible. And of course, uh, he says, verse 28, As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, uh, but as for touching the election, they are beloved of the fathers. And then that famous verse there, for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. In other words, God is not going to change his direct in dealing with the Jews. He's going to restore them no matter where they're at. And what he's saying here to the church is this. They may be your enemy because they're blind, but make sure because you've got doctrine that you're not their enemy. Because I'll bless those that bless them and I'll curse those that curse them. So that's what you have. Now there's four titles there that I want to give you that you need to get down. You find it here, uh, blindness in part until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. There's four titles in the Bible you need to know and understand. The first one is the times of the Gentiles, and that's found in Luke chapter 21, verse 24. The times of the Gentiles will be the time from the end of God dealing with the Jew in 606 B.C. up through and including the day that we're living in today, and the times of the Gentiles will run up to the rapture of the church. The times of the Gentiles end at the rapture and the second coming. The third one, that you, or the second one you have is the dispensation of the fullness of time. That's in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. I want you to understand these terms so when you bump into them, you'll know what you're dealing with. That is simply the time in the Bible or in God's timing when time ceases to exist. The fullness of time, a dispensation where there is no more time. The third one will be found in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, right here, and this will be the fullness of the Gentiles. And what he's saying here is, I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceit. The blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. The fullness of the Gentiles is the time when the last Gentile gets saved. And the church age is over. And then God begins to turn his attention to the nation of Israel, verse 26, and so all Israel shall be saved. That will be the tribulation and the millennium and on into there. And then, of course, uh, the last one will be um, the uh, resurrection, uh, the restoration of the nation of Israel. And that will be Ezekiel chapter 37. And that is when God restores the nation of Israel. It comes at the end of the times of the Gentiles. It comes at the fullness of the Gentiles. And it comes right before the dispensation of the fullness of times that God resurrects and restores uh, His people. So <clears throat> the restoration of the nation of Israel is a key doctrine. <clears throat> there are so many things that go along with it. Once we get into these <clears throat> seven series and we get a little deeper, we'll start crossing over them, like I said, and then I'll get into even more, each one of them deeper. So what you're getting today is only going to get broadened as we start laying the layers on building our safety net of doctrine here. <clears throat> so we'll hold up today with that.